0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is the heart of healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine. Imagine if you paid for an airplane ticket and then got separate and inscrutable bills from the airline, the pilot, the co-pilot, and the flight attendants. That's how the healthcare market works. In no other industry do prices for a product vary by a factor of 10 depending on where it is purchased. The price of a Prius at a dealership in Princeton, New Jersey is not five times higher than what you would pay for a Prius in Hackensack. And a Prius in New Jersey is not twice as expensive as one in New Mexico. The price of that car at the very same dealer doesn't depend on your employer, or if you're self-employed or unemployed. So why does it matter for healthcare? That's an excerpt from the New York Times best-selling book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Today, I'm talking to the author of this book, ER doctor turned reporter, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Her book reveals the dangerous, expensive, and dysfunctional American healthcare system, and she tells us exactly what we can do to fix it. Dr. Rosenthal spent 22 years as a correspondent at the New York Times before joining Kaiser Health News as editor-in-chief about five years ago. I got to know Elizabeth from her award-winning New York Times series about the cost of American healthcare called Paying Till It Hurts, a platform for amplifying patient stories from across the country. She also started a Facebook group that helps patients navigate the system.
1: Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You have spent a lot of your career really diagnosing what's wrong with our healthcare system and what has led the U.S. to have the highest healthcare spending as percentage GDP compared to other OECD countries. This is a big question, but if I gave you a magic wand to completely remake our healthcare system from scratch at a high level, what
1: would that look like? Oh, um <laughs> this is really hard because you know as a journalist, I can't have um political or partisan opinions, but I think we do need some way to control prices because what's really out of control is the pricing, nothing else. It's a good health care system, it delivers good health care, but the prices are unaffordable, and the way the prices are manipulated are you know, in any other industry would be considered. Fraud, I think. I mean, we just looked at a bill at our uh, Kaiser Health News NPR Bill of the Month series where the negotiated rate was 7% of the bill charge, right? I am the new proud owner of a Tesla, or my husband is. And, you know, would we ever be able to get that for, you know, $3,500? No, of course not. I mean, it just tells you that the prices are... They're aspirational, Mm. um, and that really needs to be brought under control. Now, you know, we've been waiting for a long time for market competition to do that. It hasn't worked so far. So, you know, when I talk to economists and I say, gee, even even like the market economists, do you think we're ever going to be able to do this without some kind of price setting? And they're like, probably not. But, you know, in theory, the market could do it, but it's so dysfunctional that it doesn't and it hasn't for, you know, now 20, 30 years of trying to make that route work. Mm -hmm.
0: What about the the health plan side of things and how insurance works? What would your ideal country look like there?
1: Well, um, we would have much more all-inclusive health insurance, of course, that would not leave patients with these large out-of-pocket expenses because, you know, really what I found in my book was um, as providers raise prices again and again and insurers try and pay less and less, that's 7%, there's still a gap between those two and what they can negotiate. And what happens when the hospital wants more money and the insurer wants to pay less, is of course we see rising premiums, deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, miscellaneous charges that aren't covered. And so poor patients are stuck holding the bag. And the truth is, you know, yeah, it may have been 10, 15 years ago, they were stuck holding the bag for a 100 bucks and maybe that's okay. Now they're stuck holding the bag for like, 10,000, 20,000. And it's pushing mm-hmm. people. I mean, we talk a lot about the people who are pushed into bankruptcy, but I can tell you in our bill of the month database, we now have probably 5,000 submissions. And most of them are from people who they're not going bankrupt, but you know, those payment plans they have for medical bills of $500 a month, $700 a month are forcing these families to forego Things like uh, summer camp, college education, uh, you know, fixing up their leaky faucets. And it's just not right. Yeah.
0: So speaking of those hospital bills, one of the most maddening ones that I learned about through you was, you know, people charged for out-of-network anesthesiologist in an in-network hospital, and you've actually, you know, you've come up with a framework for how to deal
1: with these bills. Can you talk to us about your framework and how it works? Oh, sure. This is my favorite bad action. Well, there are many favorite bad actions, but um, both in-network hospitals with out-of-network anesthesiologists. The even more egregious one is in-network hospitals with out-of-network neonatologists. Hmm. Can you imagine you have a baby, it's a sick baby, what are you gonna do? Say, oh, I'm not gonna send it to the NICU uh, because all the neonatologists are out-of-network? That's nuts. But um, in terms of anesthesiology, there's a simple fix. You know, I had uh, one of my kids was undergoing some surgery, so I called the hospital and said, can you make sure that the anesthesiologist is in-network? And they're like, oh, we can't guarantee it. You know, we don't know who's going to be assigned to the case. And I'm like, really? Because you assign the anesthesiologist. You know, I have Cigna insurance. You know, which anesthesiologists have Cigna. So God damn it, assign a Cigna anesthesiologist to my kid's case. You know, that should be the hospital's responsibility. And yeah. somehow we let them get away with that. I'm just like, this is insane.
0: Yeah. Well, another insane thing that we let them get away with is the fact that I've read between 50 and 90 percent of hospital bills are have errors. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So does that mean that any bill we get, we should scrutinize and call them up and ask questions (laughs) about it? I mean, the chances are there's an error.
1: Right. And and, you know, yes, of course, I tell everyone to do that. But, you know, part of me is like, oh, man, this is like asking someone to get a quick PhD in medical economics and, yeah. and coding, you know, the problem is in every other sector of our lives, we get bills that are in English, understandable that we can easily check. When you get a medical bill, it will often say lab work, miscellaneous, you know, or have just numerical codes. And it's really hard to check. Now, I think everyone should try. Um, If you're kind of wonky like me, you take those codes and plug them into Google and find out what you're being charged for. And yes, most hospital bills will have mistakes. Now, some of them will be things like, you know, a few years ago, my husband was in a bike accident and I wrote a piece called uh, something like, these bills would be considered fraud in any other sector. You know, they, there was one incident which which made me really crazy. Where he had a finger splint on, and it was digging into his digit, and so he went back in for the trauma guys to look at it, and they basically just cut off and the edge that was digging into his finger, and then we got a bill for nine hundred dollars for quote unquote surgery, and I was like. Wait, I thought surgery had to be on a person you all you did was cut off the end of that splint you know that's that's one you know if if your um car mechanic did something like that, yeah, you would go nuts, but in hospitals, we go oh, that's just the way it happens and Our insurer is paying it anyway, and the reason the insurer is paying it anyway is often not that the insurer is so terrible. It's that they don't know that there was an actual surgery provided during that visit. They don't know that all that happened was the edge of a splint was trimmed. They think maybe there was surgery. So there are many, there are many ways that you as a patient or that the patient is the only one who knows, hey, you know, I didn't have physical therapy or, hey, that wasn't surgery or, hey, you know, that procedure was done in the operating room, but it could have, but last time I had it done, it was in a doctor's office. So that you know, $10,000 OR fee was totally bogus. Now, you know, that being said, there's a different kind of egregious kind of semi-fraudulent behavior that happens on bills that there's really no way the average patient would be able to detect. And that happens when For example, um, there are certain billing codes, right, that are illegal to use together. You know, a billing code for, say, anesthesia would normally include pushing in the drugs for anesthesia. But hospitals and physicians, many will try and get away with billing for separate codes uh, for things that should be bundled. Now, even you or I probably wouldn't know that. You really need to know the, the kind of arcane ins and outs of negotiated coding uh, that has happened between doctors, groups, and insurers, to know that that kind of error is is happening. So good luck with that. I mean, my favorite one was, and some of them are really egregious, so you can see, them. my favorite one that I think I mentioned in the book was a couple had a new baby, you know, they looked at the bill for the baby and it had a $5,000 charge for a circumcision. They knew their baby hadn't been circumcised, but of course the insurer didn't. So it's always good to look for like the really out there egregious attempts at overbilling, but many of the others you won't be able to detect.
0: Um, what are the patient bill of rights in terms of asking questions and having more details of what is often a very confusing looking bill?
1: Well, I think the problem is there are no standards, right? You can ask for itemization, but if the itemization comes back as a bunch of codes, you know, how helpful is that? You know, and and should you have to go back four times to say, no, that's not itemized enough? I mean, again, I always go back to like the home renovation or the car mechanic example like you know what you're paying for and you don't have to like request like it doesn't say kitchen renovation $15,000 you get a really detailed list and it would be considered if not fraud like just unacceptable business practice to do otherwise
0: yeah it's funny that we've come to accept accept it as it is
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, one thing that has happened just this year is as of January, as you know, hospitals are required to post their list prices for common procedures and the rates, the negotiated rates they accept from insurers. But, you know, we just looked at that, you know, good luck using that. It's, um, posted often in an obscure corner of a website, and then it's posted in a computer language that is not compatible with most of the search tools that people use. So even the stuff that is, you know, we celebrate as transparency is totally untransparent for the actual end user, the patient. Yeah. It has to be transparent and user-friendly. Yes. (laughs) Yes, and in English, like why should hospital bills? It's like, I, I often joke, you know, um, this was in an article I did for the Times, but uh, it was about a guy who flew to Belgium to have a hip replacement, um, because this was back in the bad old days when his hip uh, uh, degeneration was considered a pre-existing condition. So his insurer wouldn't pay for it in Seattle where he lived. So he flew to Belgium Got the hip replacement for $13,000 at one of Belgium's best hospitals, including um, airfare, I I should add. And um, I asked the hospital administrator to send me the bill. And it was three pages and it was more comprehensible to me than an American bill, even though it was in Flemish, Mm because it was like, you know. do two person commerce, like, okay, two person room that I see a charge for that. Yeah. A hip implanting yeah, I see a charge for that. You know, I, so, uh, you know, it's just such a, uh, I don't know, it's so Kafka-esque, but, you know, in the end it's tragic because, because, um, because people are suffering in this yeah. country. Yeah.
0: Well, on that note, how, how does our existing system further drive health and economic disparities in our country? And who do you think really suffers the most from our dysfunctional system?
1: I think the reason I'm hopeful that it will change now is because almost everyone suffers now because um, the out-of-pocket expenses and the premiums are so high that if you're not very wealthy... So you can afford it and don't care, or poor enough that you qualify for Medicaid, you're you're kind of stuck. Um, but I think the people who suffer most, and this is this is the kind of the saddest thing about our bill of the month project, where we ask people to submit bills that they're having trouble with. And like I said, we have about 5,000. And the ones we do each month, you know, because we partner with NPR and CBS News, so they have to be kind of wowie bills, you know, $10,000, you know, something really absurd. But the vast majority of them are from you know hardworking, good middle class people who pay their bills, who have suddenly an unexpected seven hundred dollar charge or two thousand dollar charge and they just can't pay it. And it throws them into this kind of downward cycle. And you know the morning news goes, oh, $200 or $400. That doesn't make good TV, but the, the depth and breadth of that kind of suffering is enormous. And what it means is many of them end up after that experience, afraid to interact with the medical system for fear that they're going to, you have their credit ruined or they're going to be pursued by creditors and Um, So, they don't get the basic care they need. And we've seen during the last year, you know, how life expectancy has fallen due to COVID, but it was falling even before that. And I think part of it is I can't tell you how many people, as I go around speaking and I tell them what I do and what I think about, they, I, you know, I'll see a cab driver limping and I'll say, what's going on? And he'll say, well, I need a hip replacement, but I'm, I'm afraid I won't be able to afford the, expense. And that's just so sad.
0: I I have heard like that patient who went to Germany for the knee replacement or hip replacement. Um, I have been hearing more about international travel for healthcare procedures. It's quite common in the IVF world. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you think that trend is going to continue and we're just going to miss out on taking care of Americans because we're not able to do so in a way that's efficient and affordable?
1: Well, I, I think it will continue, but I think it's, you know, like the RIP medical debt operation where there are now companies that will buy medical debt that patients have and mm-hmm. pay it off. It's a symptom of a terrible, terrible health care system that people are flying to Belgium or France to get things done that they should be able to get done, you know, 10 minutes from home, but they can't. So, yes, I think the trend will continue so long as we don't fix our system. Because, you know, we often have this discussion about, like, is healthcare a right or a privilege? Mm-hmm. Which I think is is kind of off base, because I, I, I wouldn't say it's a right so much as something you need like oxygen or water. We don't say water is a right. It's just if you have a hip and a really bad hip and you can't walk, you need a hip replacement. If you're nine months pregnant, you need to deliver that baby. It's not like you're right to do it. So so it's just a basic need that we really have not addressed. And like I said, I, I, I find it appalling.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's play a game. We'll see how this works out, (laughs) but let's play a game. I like games. All right. I'm (laughs) going to name a few players in our healthcare system. And I want you on a scale (laughs) of zero to 10 with zero being totally problematic with misaligned incentives and 10 being super efficient and aligned with patient needs and care and outcomes. (laughs) How would you rate the following groups? All right, let's start with pharmaceutical companies.
1: I, okay, this is going to be hard, um, mostly because I think everyone is to blame, right? So, <laughs> so saying like, "Oh, this one's a one," and I don't think anyone is above a five, frankly. So, all right, I'll, I'll put uh, I'll put pharma at the low end, one or two, and PBMs. Uh, same, you know, I, I often am on panels that have both people from pharma and PBMs. And it's like, it's like being, I'm moderating these panels. It's like being at a circular firing squad where they're like, you know, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And I'm like, it's both. I feel like I'm dealing with my kids when they were toddlers, you know, it's both of your faults, you know? Uh, You know, yes, the PBMs, make money by, you know, being middlemen, and they take too much money. And yes, and uh, but the farmers response to just keep raising prices. So it's a it's a vicious inflationary cycle that Mm -hmm. neither side seems willing to break because neither one wants to give up any of their revenue. They're both huge industries. Yeah. Okay,
0: nonprofit hospitals. To be followed um, by for-profit hospitals.
1: <laughs> well, I think we can rate them the same because they. Oh, um, interesting. They 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 function very very similarly. I guess the only difference is, uh, you know, this is this one is really hard because the hospitals they came out of the COVID pandemic looking like heroes, right? Because they worked really hard. They you know, quickly converted outpatient clinics to ICUs in New York. They did an amazing job. But every time someone says to me, "Oh, the hospitals are heroes," I'm like, "No, the poor doctors and nurses and social workers and food workers who worked in those buildings are the heroes." Yeah. The hospitals and their C-suite people we're often, you know, far away or at vacation homes. So, you know, hospitals too, they're part of the the, the circular firing squad. When you ask them, you know, that circular firing squad involves uh, hospitals and providers generally and insurers who are both like, when I say like, why do you list these crazy prices that you know are insane. They know they're insane. And they're like, well, two reasons. One, because the insurer will only pay 7%. So of course, if we want to get more, we have to make them even higher. And the other reason, which is equally um, shocking to me, but I had one hospital CEO say it to me is, well, because sometimes, you know, an Arab sheik comes in and with a, with a suitcase of cash and just pays it, so that's the the kind of insane thing about the hospital prices that, um, you, you know, they're so high that if just one time out of a hundred or five hundred someone actually pays the sticker price, they're doing fine. Now it, uh-huh. and it doesn't matter so much apparently to uh, not for profit places that the other 99 people are suffering, losing their homes, you know, uh, unable to send their kids to summer camp. Yeah. So um, it, it's very venal behavior in my, in my view. And so, you know, not for profits. Well, let's look at them separately. I'll give them like a five, I guess, or a four, because they're playing a game too. And, and they're, incentives are business incentives, not healthcare incentives for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, I I would give them higher only because of the people who work within them, who are often really great people who are just trying to do their best in a system whose incentives are not aligned with medicine. Mm -hmm. So I got a call from a doctor yesterday who said, you know, I'm encouraged to do by my hospital system things that I know are unnecessary medically, and in some cases, actually harmful medically, uh, because it's better for revenue. So, Mm -hmm. you know, hospital as just the hospital, and apart from the the healthcare providers who work in it, I'd say four. And for the um, for-profit hospitals... I might say 4.5, just because at least they're honest about what they're up, know I mean, what they're up to. Um, you know, the not-for-profit hospitals, in theory, are supposed to be doing um, charity care and community benefit in exchange for not paying taxes, and they do. Uh, you know, almost every study that's looked at that has shown they do not do nearly enough community benefit or charity care to make up for their large tax breaks. so
0: While not paying local
1: taxes that can support communities. I mean, we just did an article and this may get me in slightly hot water with an institution. I do respect its medicine. Like that's the problem. I'm sure not the first or last time that will happen. No, but I respect it. So many of these places, I respect the medicine tremendously, but not the business uh, aspect. So the Cleveland Clinic is opening a for-profit very, very fancy hospital across the street from Buckingham Palace, where they will only do lucrative procedures like, you know, cardiac procedures, hips and knees, um, cancer care, hoping to attract cash-paying patients from Europe, NHS, who don't want to wait. Now, sorry, but how does that benefit the people of Cleveland, Ohio? (laughs) not, you know, when we asked, well, how does... I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, by the way. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, do you feel, do you feel like this is, this is (laughs) like helping you and your family? Um, You know, when we asked the CEO of that new business venture, because it is, it's a commercial venture. Mm -hmm. How does this help the people of Cleveland, Ohio? The answer was Oh, we've learned like, you know, we don't have to have each hospital do its own sterilization. We could have a central sterilization facility. And I'm like, really? They needed to like build a billion dollar hospital across from Buckingham Palace to figure that out. I could have told you that, you know, so. um,
0: Perhaps the brand having Cleveland as a city, the name plastered in such a prestigious location
1: is... (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Now, you to, to the Cleveland Tourism Board. Right. Maybe. I mean, you know, yeah. there, there, it's just it's a stretch. It's a stretch. And I think, you know, again, I, I do feel like either these non for profit hospitals should Um, really help their local communities in meaningful ways. And we should have standards for that and really do charity care. Because um, we did another story showing that although every hospital is required to have a charity care policy, they often don't tell patients about that. So patients think they can't afford things or try and pay bills that they really don't have to pay because they do qualify for financial help from the hospital. So either of these not for profits should deliver that community benefit and charity care or they should pay taxes and their their localities can use that money to do the things that the people of their hometown need. But again, we've let them get away with it. You can't I, I mean I can't blame anyone because uh, our politicians have allowed this to happen, you know, yeah. and they are businesses. So,
0: so what about the AMA? Where would you rate them?
1: Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I think I'm going to take a pass on this one because you know <laughs> okay. they are they're they they're um, an industry group, and yeah, like every industry group, they exist uh, as one young doctor. Who had not joined told me yesterday to basically make sure that physicians get the best revenue deal they can, and also self perpetuation, right? Um, and and I know there are a number of young doctors who are trying to form alternate kinds of groups. Who, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think doctors and physicians and nurses. I don't think anyone in the healthcare field. Should live in poverty or be living paycheck to paycheck, they deserve to be well paid uh, they do really hard work but um that's really not what the a m a is about it's not about fair pay it's about maximizing pay mm-hmm. um, so and and frankly you know i i don't know i'm s- sli- i'm from a slightly different generation of physicians because being a physician when I trained, wasn't; a, it was a way to be comfortable, but not a way to be really rich, right? Uh, when I worked as an ER doctor, uh, I was paid by the hospital. You mm-hmm. know, I wasn't a contractor owned by private a- equity, which is now what most ER physicians are. So, um, but I think that calculation for some physicians have changed, but I think for most physicians, what matters is being able to go in and take care of patients, getting reasonably compensated for it so you can live a good life, a good upper middle class life, and um, not having to think about, I mean, they don't want their patients ripped off. I mean, and this I hear so much from physicians when a patient brings their doctor a bill and says, hey, did you know they, got, they charged me $20,000 for that uh, you know, 10 minute procedure? physicians are like, oh man, I feel really bad about that. Yeah. But, but what can I do? And I think that's what needs to change. There needs to be an alternative group that says, you can do something, you know, you need to organize and make your voices heard because um, many hospitals treat physicians now almost like, you know, it's almost Marxist. They're, they're just the labor, you yeah. know, they're the is there
0: um, is there a group? Is there physicians against our dysfunctional healthcare
1: system? There are a number of groups, and the problem is, I think they're very. Um, it's kind of balkanized. You know, they they tend to be at one hospital or in one region. The person I spoke to last night was doing a clubhouse event. That's a group of mid-career physicians who are just sick of being told what to do for business purposes by their hospitals and feel like they have very little way to push back against that uh individually but they're hoping that together and they want people to run for office they want to form stronger physicians groups at hospitals but you know at some level i i, I sadly said to him gosh, I I wish you all the luck in the world, but boy, is that going to be hard because not at smaller hospitals. At smaller hospitals, I've seen physicians organized to say things like, no, you cannot close down that obstetrical unit because there's no other place to deliver within 100 miles of here. And this is a bunch of the medical staff rose up and kept an OB unit at a hospital in California. If you're going against One of the really bigs, like UPMC or Cleveland Clinic. Boy, you know, it's such a David and Goliath problem.
0: We'll be right back after the break.
1: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any
0: better than this. So tell me about moving from medicine to journalism. How did you decide to make that jump? And what did your family think, especially your father, correct me if I'm wrong, who's a doctor?
1: Yeah, um, my father had, I mean, he had passed away when I was quite young, when I was 12. So um, he had no, he had no say in that. Um, Um, my mom, who was a doctor's wife, of course, um, I think was disappointed that I changed careers, and and you know, kind of amusingly, when we would try as a family to get a restaurant reservation, and when I was working a reporter at the New York Times, and they would have no tables, she would say, "Tell them you're a doctor." And I would be like, <laughs> "Mom, that doesn't work anymore." You know, <laughs> for me, I was always interested in both. Writing and and medicine, I, I really like both. I do come from a family of doctors, so that was kind of the default career. And frankly, I I am um, I wasn't sure I could make a living as a as a writer, so I thought, well, I'll be a doctor and I'll write on the side. And what happened was, I was uh, practicing in an ER in New York, just a few years out of residency. And I had been writing all through medical school and residency uh, for a whole bunch of different publications. And now I'm gonna sound like a dinosaur because there was something going on in the early 90s called the Clinton Health Reform Plan. And I was working in an urban ER in New York City. And I saw a lot of problems even then for people who couldn't pay or didn't have a primary care doctor. So they showed up with kind of minor stuff at the ER. And um, I'd done a lot of freelance writing for the New York Times. So they said, do you want to come on board and cover the Clinton health reform plan? And I was like, OK, I'll take a break from the ER. Um, And I assumed it would pass and I would go back to being an ER doctor eventually. Um, And then I had a second kid and... Life happened, and uh, my husband and I were offered to be the New York Times correspondents in China, and so I kind of just never went back. But I enjoyed being an ER doctor, um, but partly for the same reasons I enjoy being a journalist. It's because you talk to people uh, about every, from every, you talk to people from every walk of life about their lives, their health what ails them whether it's physical or financial and um and you know i i came to realize when i thought about going back that yes as an er doc i could sew up cuts you know one one laceration at a time but really the problem was bigger than that and there was some kind of system reform that was needed even then The problems are there, but on steroids, because it's not just the kind of poor and underinsured. It's everyone who's suffering with the system. So I never went
0: back. On that note, last year, you did have a medical incident that landed (laughs) you in the hospital. Can you tell us about your patient experience and, of course, the bills? And did they know who you were?
1: (laughs) No. um, I mean, basically, I had a a very freak head injury at the very beginning of COVID. And I'd like to say I was doing something like, you know, skydiving or skiing, but I just basically had a fall in the kitchen in the middle of the night and uh, uh, was taken by uh, ambulance to a hospital in DC where I live and had some pretty serious after effects uh, that are, are better now. But in terms of uh, you know, when they asked me, when I woke up after six hours, they would cleared my spine and my head and they said, uh, here, you can sign your discharge papers. You you should be fine. They sewed up a big laceration too. And um, I couldn't really pick up my left arm to sign a discharge paper. So that was bad. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. I bought myself 24 hours in the neurotrauma ICU. And then because it was COVID, they were like, okay, uh, we're going to discharge you to home, you know, find a neurologist, uh, do some PT, good luck. (laughs) And I didn't, you know, it was the the very beginning of COVID and they really couldn't test who had it and who didn't. So I didn't want to be in the hospital. They didn't want me to be in the hospital. I didn't want to go to rehab. So, um, that was that right now. The lucky thing for me was, uh, Right after that, I I was left to find a neurologist, and I had a friend whose dad worked at Hopkins, and he hooked me up with uh, a neurologist who's been wonderful at Hopkins, where I get my care. And Hopkins happens to be in Maryland, which is the one state where um, medical bills are rate regulated, right? So my bills from Hopkins have been perfect it's 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 really shocking to me i mean they've been reasonable um i have had no weird uh surprise bills out of network are you bills. sure it's not
0: cuz they were like oh this is elizabeth rosenthal we need to be very I careful
1: i think it's cuz it's the state now the interesting thing and i'm not going to name names here at some point during the recovery cuz it was rather complicated um and as is still you know 15 months later it's it's there's still some stuff lingering um because it happened during covid and they wanted to make sure i didn't have some underlying neurologic problem i had i had to have a whole bunch of you know, different neurologic tests that were very exotic and two spinal taps, and they got some, they wanted some second opinions. So um, one of the second opinions was at a hospital, I won't name in another state, where the doctor's visit at Hopkins with the neurologist who's head of neurology there was billed at $350, which seemed reasonable for an hour long visit the same visit with a neurologist at the other state hospital, which was shorter and more cursory, was $1,700. Okay. So that shows you the Mm. difference between a little bit of rate regulation. Likewise, I had spinal taps at both places. The one at Hopkins was done in the normal neurology clinic by neurology residents, it was fine. I mean, I've done spinal taps as a doctor. It's not like drawing blood, but it's not that elaborate a procedure. You can you can do it at the bedside. Out of state hospital and that I can't remember, but it cost under a thousand dollars for the procedure. Out of state hospital, out of Maryland hospital, when I went there, they said oh, we normally do this in a procedure room by neuroradiology under sonographic guidance. So there, you know, there's facility fee, OR fee, radiology fee, sonogram fee for a test that didn't need any of that. And when I ask the neurologist, like, why? You know, they kind of shrug and say, that's just how our hospital likes to do it. And why does our hospital like to do it that way? I assume because you end up with a bill that's ten times what what it is when you do it in, a, you know, a simple office. So, I think that's the kind of thing I learned. And that bill for that second spinal tap is still being negotiated by by my wow. insurer because, and I'm not going to pay it. Like, you know, (laughs) you guys, you guys can fight it out, but you know, I'm not going to pay it because this was completely unneeded. And PS, if you ever have to get a spinal tap, the neurologists are the ones who know how to do it. The neuroradiologists, they're like, you know they're totally dependent on okay like taking this, notes <laughs> this ultrasound guidance sure. cuz they don't know what it feels like when yeah. the needle goes into yeah. the spinal Okay now, that's so.
0: that is good to know <laughs> um your work has no doubt made a difference in the lives of so many tell me something that you're really proud of perhaps a patient whose life you impacted through your book or your frameworks that you've made public
1: Oh that's that's really hard um The one story that I started seven years ago and is just ending now, um, I did a story when I was at the New York Times about a guy who got a surprise out-of-network bill from an assistant surgeon who he'd never even met. He had some spine surgery. uh, His regular surgeon got like $5,000, and suddenly he got a surprise bill from an out-of-network assistant. Uh, for 113,000 or no, it was 117,000. So I did a big story about that. It kind of started the discussion about surprise out of network builds, which it has been so gratifying to watch that grow um, and go into the public space so that now, yesterday, I believe, Surprise billing legislation was finally passed at the federal level. now, I would say it's not good legislation and that it doesn't really solve the problem, but um it's a good start. but again, should I feel great about that um, I'm happy to have made a difference. It's really sad to me that something as egregious as surprise billing should have taken seven years to address you know I'm like. I'm I'm not a patient person. I'm like, this has to stop tomorrow. You know, this is absurd. But um, having lived in D.C. for the last five years, I realized that the wheels of politics turn very slowly.
0: Well, Dr. Rosenthal, thank you so much for your time and insights today. If you would like to hear more about how we can heal our healthcare system, follow Dr. Rosenthal on Twitter at Rosenthal Health. And if you haven't yet picked up her book, An American Sickness, you can buy it at your local bookstore.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And may we all be in a better place healthcare-wise in a year. Amen to that. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Haliteco Techco is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Teko and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our music is by Utah. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's
1: offscript, no t, dot com.